Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Ryan Johnson, the writer and director of Brick, and you are listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. When I found you, I saw raw, untamed. Now, I need to check the tape, but I'm pretty sure that's verbatim what I told Ryan Johnson the first time we had him on the show. We knew the force was strong with him way before Lucasfilm did. That clip from the trailer for the Ryan Johnson-directed Star Wars The Last Jedi. This week on the show, our review of the year's most anticipated film. Plus, some thoughts on Call Me By Your Name, the acclaimed new film starring Army Hammer and Timothy Chalamet. That and more. Raw, untamed power. Ahead on Film Spotting. We will get to our review of The Last Jedi here in a moment, but we're going to talk about some other films this week as well, including the movie that just this past weekend received a bunch of nominations from our critics group, the Chicago Film Critics Association, the movie Call Me By Your Name. Director Luca Guadagnino's film is a coming-of-age love story between a 17-year-old boy and a 24-year-old man played by Army Hammer. It's the movie that led all films with eight CFCA nominations. We will talk about that film and those nominations a little later in the show, plus a dueling funny voices edition of Massacre Theater. You've got another one in you? I don't know. I haven't prepared. I haven't even watched the scene yet, so we will all be surprised there. And we've got a couple new Golden Brick nominees to present as well. But first, they didn't show us The Last Jedi until after the awards deadline, so zero nominations for Star Wars Episode Eight. Shucks. Gee, I hope it doesn't hurt its box office. Something me has always been there. But I was awake. And I need help. I've seen this raw strength only once before. It didn't scare me enough then. It does now. Kill it. If you have to. That's the only way to become. 
become what you were meant to be. We love our processing time on the show, mm-hmm. Adam, and we've had a little bit of that here with Star Wars The Last Jedi. We screened the eighth episode in the ongoing space saga, this one written and directed by a film spotting favorite, Ryan Johnson, a few hours ago now. Hopefully that's been enough time to throw a couple of worthwhile thoughts together. We will try to avoid spoilers, as this is very likely the most anticipated film of the year, part of a franchise that was formational for so many childhoods, including ours. Here's a little context to start our conversation. The Last Jedi finds Rey, the novice Jedi and resistance fighter played by Daisy Ridley, pretty much where The Force Awakens left her, on the remote island where Luke Skywalker, played by Mark Hamill, has banished himself for reasons the movie eventually reveals. As Rey tries to persuade Luke to join the fight against the fascist First Order, we find the other new heroes we were introduced to in The Force Awakens elsewhere. Resistance pilot Poe Dameron, Oscar Isaac, is largely trapped along with Commander Leia, the late Carrie Fisher, on a transport ship surrounded by a First Order battle fleet. Meanwhile, AWOL stormtrooper turned reluctant resistance fighter Finn, played by John Boyega, sneaks away on his own mission to infiltrate one of those First Order ships. Adam, one thing we asked ourselves when reviewing The Force Awakens in 2015 was whether or not that film succeeded in getting us to care about these new characters. Were we excited about the prospect of following them on another adventure? We both answered with a pretty enthusiastic yes. In fact, I was more than ready to move on from some of the most beloved movie characters from my childhood and embrace this new generation of heroes. Does The Last Jedi let us do that? Yeah. I think it really does. And I was certainly thinking about that question, too, as we had that revisiting The Force Awakens discussion just a few weeks ago. And I had a little bit of a reversal on one of those characters. We will definitely talk more about that character here in just a second. The answer is definitely yes, with perhaps one exception. I'll talk about a character I was disappointed in where the eighth installment took him. But it's not just that I got more of them. Johnson didn't disappoint as far as making them really complex characters who each have personal journeys in addition to the role they're playing within this larger narrative. And I would have been content with at least a couple of them if that had just been the case, if it had just been more Poe Dameron, because I like the character. He's a badass, charismatic pilot, and Oscar Isaac's a great actor. If we got Luke here and saw him to be what I expected him to be, which was just basically the new Yoda. He's now graduated on to that mentor teacher phase of his life, and he's going to be the all-knowing sort of wizard. I would have been okay with that. But almost all the primary characters here undergo transformations. They all have arcs. They all learn something about themselves along the way. They're in conflict with themselves, and they come out another side. Hamill, in particular, I want to single out here because maybe he didn't get enough credit in my eyes for his performances in the first three movies, certainly in A New Hope. I think everyone chuckles a little bit at some of his line readings. But when I revisited that film a year or two ago, I was really struck by what I thought was a very fine performance. And he's only gotten better with age, it turns out. His voice has grown so much deeper. His body is less wiry. There's just something about him in this middle age that makes him a more formidable presence without him really having a ton of action. It's not like he's doing a whole lot throughout most of this film. But the character and the performance that really surprised me here, Josh, was Adam Driver. And that was the 
character, Kylo Ren, as you recall, I did have that reversal on because I saw him as a little bit of a disappointing villain. And I came to realize on that revisit that some of the things I was seeing in him that maybe made him a weak villain were actually so fundamental to his character. And they were elements that I thought would hopefully come into play in this next installment. And they do. I don't know if it's the writing here that's maybe just a little bit better with his character in particular or him being a couple years older when he made this movie versus The Force Awakens. But he too, like Mark Hamill, has just gotten better here. His voice is deeper. His torment is deeper. I felt for him at times and sympathized with him at times, but also recognized that that torment made him a lot more dangerous. And the immaturity and the occasional whininess that was there before, and it turns out should have been there before because he was really just a kid in The Force Awakens, that's gone completely. That angst, I think, has now become full-blown anguish, and I never really knew where he stood. I had a very hard time reading him, and not because he wasn't making interesting choices, but because of, I suppose, the complexity of that anguish. I knew that I was going to be surprised by that character, and I was consistently. Well, Kylo Ren, yeah, I was on board with Kylo Ren from the beginning. I think he's absolutely a strength of this film as well, and he still keeps you on your toes. The narrative, his personal narrative mm-hmm. does as well in ways that I think is is really strong and, and takes you aback in the moment. But the more you start to piece together mm-hmm. motivation and make some of these family connections that, of course, are at the heart of this series, it does make a lot of sense in a really intriguing way. So I'm glad that the movie gave him a lot of attention to go back to Hamill. Uh, I'm not quite as convinced as you are on his maturation as an actor. I think you're right. There is some development there in the original trilogy, and he definitely has – he has in his vocal work particularly, yes. and Hamill has gone on to do, to mm-hmm. have a rich vocal career as a voice actor, you can sense some gravitas. I'm going to give Johnson more of the credit for making this characterization of Luke Skywalker work than Hamill, though. I think there's a lot – in general, there's a lot visually here that distinguishes hmm. The Last Jedi from The Force Awakens. You can't get past the power way. converters, can you, and- Josh? <laughs> <laughs> it's rough to get past the power converters. There's there's none of that here, though. But I don't – Hamill's a very declarative actor as a physical presence. Mm-hmm. And, and when he's – what he's saying, you know what he's saying and he's, he's, he's saying it hard. Um, but the framing of him as Luke Skywalker has grown into this legendary mythical figure here, that's how Johnson's camera sees him. And so initially on this island, we get hints of that where he's framed against the windswept landscape. The weather plays a role in this as well. It's all building up this character. And when he finally does leave the island, we Mm -hmm. won't say why or necessarily where he goes, but there is a confrontation And man, does Johnson give him an operatic stage Mm -hmm. on which to do that. So I think Hamill works in this film. Uh, To go back to the question I posed uh, to you, I still could have used less of him. Uh, When I got out of the movie, the the first person I texted – and I don't know if this is breaking embargo. These embargo laws are so complicated (laughs) now. But a film spotting listener, Wendy Fox Weber, my former – Biggest Star Wars fan I know. Biggest Star Wars fan I know as well. My former movie editor at the Naperville Sun had to give her a first impression. And I just said, if you want a lot of Luke and Leia, 
you'll love it. Huh. And I'm sure she will because uh, she does admire both of those actors. And I think uh, Fisher is good here as well. But, man, there's a lot of them. Hmm. And I didn't I did feel that not, Oh, the first half of the film yeah, there's a good is chunk of pretty it. much Luke Skywalker. Yeah, I never and felt like it was too much. And I, I see more subtlety, too, in his performance. But. And I didn't really expect that. So I've got to sit with this a little bit and say, OK, it's not what I expected. But is that necessarily a negative? Because, as I said in the intro, I was so well set up with – Jumping on board with these new characters. Mm -hmm. And it's not only the fact that we get a lot of Luke in this first half, but it's that that narrative choice also separates this trio. And part of what we loved about them was their chemistry and the way their charisma played off of each other. Maybe not Poe quite as much, although there is that flight sequence where he and Finn are taking out Mm -hmm. the First Order ships and they get to have some camaraderie there that I really appreciated. But particularly Finn and Rey. This movie pretty much keeps them apart. Right. And I guess I was just ready for that to become something at the forefront of The Last Jedi rather than something we gradually eventually sort of build to. Because even once we get Ray off that island, uh, I liked some of the stuff on the mm-hmm. island, but I was ready for her to get off. Once she does, she's still a little bit separate. Now, maybe I'm just farther ahead than a lot of fans want to be, um, than maybe the makers, the handlers of the franchise want to be in letting go of the past. I'm surprised that I am that far ahead. I think that's a testament to who these characters are in The Force Awakens and who they are here in The Last Jedi because all the performances of the new characters, the actors playing the new characters are very good. Uh, Maybe I'm just a little bit further ahead than other people in in wanting them to start getting to do their own stuff. Hmm. Well, I would say even if you thought there was too much Hamill here, I'm surprised that you would at all feel as if you didn't get enough of the other characters. While I agree with you, I will say I agree with you about the disappointment in splitting them up. And that ties in completely with what I'm going to say about the one character and their arc that did kind of bother me here a little bit. But we do get not only that transformation in Hamill's character, not only does he go somewhere that surprised me, but we get it with Driver, as I said. We get it with Ridley's character. Those elements are still very strong with her. And I think you get it with Poe Dameron, too, who I really saw as someone who, as I mentioned, could have been just fine with him just being the badass pilot. That probably would have been enough. But Ryan Johnson does add an element to his character that makes him, I suppose, a little bit less heroic. But he also undergoes a transformation. So that was a big part of what made this film very successful for me. Now, the one character who I feel like doesn't really get an arc is Finn. And I'm really glad that his storyline not only gets Rose, the character played by Kelly Marie Tran, into this film, and we do get a surprise when we talk about maybe the things that I felt like were new to this series that Ryan added that maybe another director wouldn't. There is something that we get that comes out of their storyline. And yet, every time John Boyega and Kelly Marie Tran were together on screen, I wanted to get back either to the island, frankly, with Luke and Ray, or especially get to the scenes with Ray and Kylo Ren, or I would have been content with more Leia and Poe. I thought that that storyline was the weakest, and I think part of it is that Boyega's character doesn't really go anywhere. There is this idea that ties back into this larger theme of heroism that's brought up again after being brought up originally in The Force Awakens, this notion of his to run, 
rather than to maybe face a fight head on. But that's really not given much time here at all. It feels a little more unformed, certainly unformed in relation to the other character arcs. And actually, if you see his big moment at the end of this film, maybe his big learning moment, it actually, for me, serves Poe's storyline even more than it serves his own. So Boyega, for the second time this year, unfortunately, because it happened in Detroit, too, I felt like he was maybe the one character who I felt like could have had a meteor part. I think he's the weakest link here when you put him in the context of all these other great characters and their storylines. You asked, you know, what are the touches that do mark this as a Ryan Johnson film? And I would point to, I think there's a strong thread of humor. The distinction, there were jokes in The Force Awakens, you know, and and that was one of the first things Mm -hmm. I think early on we saw, oh, this is going to be funny, right? But here it's more of like an instinctual humor. You know, it's not like let's insert punchline in script here. Mm -hmm. It's allowing it to come out of the situation that I really did like. Uh, And there are some good, more obvious gags as well. Also, he's really going for it on the creature angle. And I love that. You know, it's one. this is you one do. of the world – I do. It's one of the world-building details. It's probably why I'm a sucker for the prequels because they're overflowing with weird creatures. And I like that emphasis. I like the way it makes – even something like on the island will see a sea creature's tail in the background. So I noted that too. It makes it feel tangible yes. and real. And, yeah. and even the details in the background are given attention and time. But let me ask you – and I say this honestly – not caring you, one bit at all about the porks. Are you anti-porks, Adam? I think I might be, but I just want to say for the record that I have no dog or furry creature in this fight because I only know that porgs are even a thing from the few random kind of snarky comments on Twitter. Yeah. Not even the comments that are actually anti-porg or pro-porg, just the more kind of ironically acknowledging that there's there's the great porg wars of 2017. I haven't been part of those wars, but maybe because of that awareness, when I see them on screen – I can't help but admit I wrote down in my notebook, why? Why are they there? They they add – I don't know that they add to the world-building element the way some of the other creatures do. They, they, feel, they feel cute and extraneous. They, they're not harmful to the movie overall, but I'm not convinced that we needed them. I'm glad we've finally gotten to the most important thing about <laughs> The Last Jedi. I was also unaware of a Porg war. I was, oh. I was Porg aware. Well, I guess you sat out. <laughs> I was poor aware because I, I avoided everything I could, but I did see images. And also, I mean, I think there was even, you know, like an image hashtag at some point. So, yes, I was poor aware. I'm going to – let's see. Um, I'm going to go down as pro-porg. And it's not because – maybe it leans a little too heavily on them for comic relief here and there, although I do like the, the Chewbacca joke. I thought that was pretty funny actually. But I think they work as world building, especially when – and here's an island sequence that I did like, this montage of Luke describing the Force. Now, a lot of jokes are made about other descriptions of the Force mm-hmm. and how clumsy it is in some of the prequels. Even I will admit, I think this is a pretty elegant, really eloquent breakdown elegant. Yes. of what this myster- – without making it scientifically understandable. It. Yeah. But it makes sense within the context of this. I mean, yeah. I, I think this might be one of the best contributions to the franchise that The Last Jedi is offering. Not, not 
scientific, but not also a bunch of spiritual mumbo-jumbo. No, and it's grounded in – this brings us back to the poor because it's grounded in this, this great yin-yang montage where Luke talks about – and I forget where they show up. I think life and death, right? Yeah. And shows some – these porgs, so they're in nests on seawalls. And it'll show, I think, hatching. Are mm-hmm. they hatching? Something like I that. I think so. And then it'll show later ones that have died. And it'll it also includes things like light and dark. And we'll get images that match that too. It is quite a beautiful little sequence. I've got too much ugliness in me, Josh. The, I can't, I can't tolerate are, the cuteness. The porgs are crucial to that <laughs> okay, sequence. They are. Okay. And it if, could have been any creature, wants, but yes. If anyone wants to say that, no, they're they're on the level of minions, fine. I, I can understand that take, too. So should we move on from the porgs? Okay. I mean, I've got 10 more minutes on do, them, but if you want to. I do, I do think there's a lot of great world building. I think the attention to creatures is part of that. And I also think there's some really poetic imagery here that is the sort of thing we've seen in Looper or Brick. Um, the two other favorite films of mine that Ryan Johnson has made. One of those images, I'll just say, is a spaceship colliding at light speed with another. Mm-hmm. And the after effect of that, the way silence is employed, the, it makes it both awe-inspiring and mournful. And I think that's a through line, too, to The Last Jedi is that there are times to pause and acknowledge the mournfulness of loss because mm. a lot of death happens in this film. And uh, here's another visual connection to that, which is also very poetic. This final battle takes place on a planet, a mineral planet, where we learn the ground is covered in salt and it appears that the earth itself is like red clay, mm-hmm. red dirt. And so even when a footstep goes down, and anyone who's seen the trailer, even the poster imagery, this is played up. When a footstep goes down, then the red kind of seeps through that white. And once the battle gets underway, this too is at once beautiful where mm-hmm. these the vehicles will cause these streaks behind them, but things get grislier and fiercer. And then it just looks like churned up. It's grisly. The ground mm-hmm. itself becomes grisly. And so that's another example of poetic imagery that that I think is, you know, is a hallmark of The Last Jedi in the context of all the other installments. Yeah, I'm certainly with you on the poetry, the beauty of the imagery there in that battle that does utilize the red dirt, the red earth. And it made me think of one movie in particular that was not, as it turns out, one of the movies that Ryan talked about on our show on episode 500 when he said there were certain movies that were reference points for him and that he was making his cast and crew watch. I don't believe this movie came up, but I was thinking about Kurosawa's Ron and those battle sequences there and the use of red as they're riding on those horses and they're all carrying their flags. And you just see those flags in battle and the movement. It it was mirrored to me a little bit by the way at one point there's such a frenzy in the battle that it seems almost as if there are red flags being waved because the dirt is so pervasive on the ground and in the air. So I love that touch. That seemed to me the kind of thing that a true visual artist would try to evoke there in a battle scene that isn't necessarily fundamental to the plot. It's not It's not needed, but it does make it a lot more interesting. There were other things, too, and I wonder if you jotted down some of the things that occurred to you about what maybe were personal touches or at least personal choices that Ryan Johnson made. And one of the things was we mentioned the the kind of tangible nature of things. Even when we're watching what's clearly a fake sea creature, it it seems very real and it adds an element of depth and, and realness to this environment. This is decidedly old school 
to me, if you go from the opening scroll of the movie, it goes like all these movies do to a scene involving a huge ship and we're about to be ensconced in a battle. And it's a glorious shot, what we see with this mammoth spaceship. And I can't describe it any other way except to say it seems like the height of technology in that moment. And then it cuts to the ground and the rebel forces assembling for battle. And I felt like I was watching something out of the life and death of Colonel Blimp, like the archers from the 1950s, almost like a World War II era army movie. And that island that's enchanting and glorious, but it does seem like a very real place. It was shot on a location. It's not just a green screen. It's not a bunch of CGI. And we see the use of older equipment in it. And you get the the sense of the dust actually being on the equipment. It's, It's as if he really did make an effort to try to combine these futuristic elements or these sci fi elements with samurai pictures and westerns and old combat movies. Yeah, you know, I actually thought of, though it's black and white, uh, The Seven Samurai with uh, that final battle scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, so maybe that was a reference point too. But you can sense, I think he might have mentioned a World War II dogfighting movie as an influence. When 12 he, O'Clock High is one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And boy, does that come through in the opening mm-hmm. fight sequence, which is nothing new to the Star Wars universe in that it is these spaceships involved in a dogfight, but there is a clarity and a precision, and it's choreographed so well that it still felt fresh and exciting to me. And then there is a touch involving... One thing this movie does well is it makes a grand sequence like that It quickly reduces it to something personal. Mm -hmm. And in this case, there are the spaceships that are essentially bombing ships. They hold these huge payloads. And we find one bomber, the rest of her crew, has been killed. So it's up to her to be able to deliver this. And this entire battle sequence comes down to whether this one woman is going to be able to grab this one device in time. And I think that's that just makes the stakes feel mm-hmm. much more personal because it does involve an individual. So th- this move towards you know practical effects is a decided decision they've made in this next batch because one of my criticisms of the prequels, too much CGI, especially when it comes to sets and that. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if this has more than Force Awakens. I felt like certainly that island... And, really? Yeah, I had the opposite feeling because – I guess when you move to that casino city where the uh, Finn storyline mm-hmm. largely takes place and there's, um, I there's some creatures involved I there which are clearly CGI. I think for the most part it's handled well. I mean this by no means swings back to the prequel's use of it. Mm-hmm. But it did feel like there's probably a little bit more here than there was in Force Awakens. There might actually be and yet I feel like the nods to so many throwback – elements and pieces of equipment and just even the look of things, as I said, feeling like you're looking at an old World War II picture in terms of the color and the costuming and stuff. It felt to me even more practical, I guess. Another Ryan Johnson touch that stood out to me, or at least it seemed like it could be a Ryan Johnson touch, is a decision he makes to bring in the world outside of Star Wars. And what I mean by that is We are constantly in Star Wars movies watching characters fight about and discuss the elements that were born out of this universe. They just feel to me like a sealed off type of universe where everything's about the force and it's about the dark side. And of course, that's good and evil and it touches on a lot of myths and we can read allegorical elements into that. But these movies are fundamentally about 
themselves or itself, this larger universe. And we actually get a sequence here. It is part of the Finn and Rose plotline where Ryan Johnson at least makes us consider the haves and the have-nots, which is not something I remember ever truly thinking about when watching a Star Wars movie. And we do usually only meet characters. I could be wrong. This is just my two hours after the, the screening thinking about it thoughts. But we meet characters who serve our characters, who help move the story forward, or else why really do we meet them? We meet some kids here in this story that, yes, they do have a small plot function, but for me, it felt like it was much more about Ryan actually making us think about notions of inequality and injustice in a way that, as I said, I don't think a Star Wars film has done previously. And this leads to something, which, of course, I will not give away, but I spent a lot of time talking about the way J.J. Abrams understood the myth, the larger myths of Star Wars and the way he reinforces them. Well, Ryan Johnson, he gets it all in one shot, one shot at the end of this movie that harkens back to every single one of us as kids who did something very similar to what we see this character do. Only, I don't think Josh, it's at all about kind of fan service. It's not about him nodding or winking at us going, yeah, that's just like you when you were seven. It's tied back to directly what we see happening in this movie. It's about hope. It's about hope for the future of this world. And it's a magnificent shot. The coda itself? Yeah. Yeah, I love the coda. I thought that was really nice. Didn't expect it at all. And when it came up, I thought, wow, what a what a great way to sum up not only the past, but to point forward as well. So that was a really nice touch. You mentioned fan service. I don't think this has quite as much fan service, even though I still contend it has a lot of Luke. Not for purposes of fan service, no. where maybe you could say that's what Han was doing a lot of in... The Force Awakens, though I think Harrison Ford was great there and appreciated his presence. How did you feel about the scene? And I'm going to guess because you've already hinted that you were on board with uh, how Kylo Ren was handled in this film. But how did you feel about the scene that was a very close match for the climactic scene in Return of the Jedi? I know a lot of people are thinking of this as possibly the Empire Strikes Back corollary because yeah, Force Awakens was such a new hope corollary. I think it is. And and there are overall. touches here, but there's that one sequence where Kylo Ren faces off against Rey, and I guess we can say that Snoke is there as well. Mm-hmm. So the whole dynamic in oh, the yeah. room is very similar to with the Emperor and Darth Vader and Luke in The Return mm-hmm. of the Jedi. It worked for me, even though I could clearly see the parallels. No, it worked for me a lot. And it's probably the one, I think we can say, that does not only nod to one of the previous films, but does most closely parallel that previous film. I was definitely aware, or I felt aware, of Ryan giving us nods at times to those previous pictures, but then just subtly kind of subverting our expectations there and coming off the Abrams movie. And I praised it for the way, as you remember, it was acknowledging the cyclical nature of these myths and did give us somewhat of a new spin on these familiar moments. Ryan, he kind of teases us. We get a shot where we see an X-wing sunk on the island and we think, oh, it's just like on Dagobah, and we're going to get that moment, right? Right, Aren't we going to get that moment where she's going to lift it out of the water? Or there's a couple shots that involve caves that are eerily just like the shots of the cave on Dagobah where Luke goes in and faces his greatest fear. 
there's the whole plot line, too, that feels to me just like out of A New Hope, where some characters have to go break in to the First Order's ship to try to disable something. But none of those do play out quite how we might expect them to. So so Ryan is aware of of those touches and kind of wants to play, I think, with our expectations a little bit in ways that don't feel either shoehorned in so we appreciate them or shoehorned in to simply defy us. So one of the lines, and this involves R2-D2, that is nodding to those nods is when Luke says, that was cheap. Because yeah. there's a recall to something exactly from A New Hope. And I think that's how a lot of the, the movie's playful yeah. about those th- sorts of things. And I think that that largely works. So the, the scene I was talking about, the, the showdown, uh, the other thing I want to say about it is I think it's one of the highlights, the stunt choreography, mm-hmm. because it there does involve a lightsaber duel. I think we can say that. Yep. Pretty great. I mean – Ray has a move here, the the dropped lightsaber move. That should go down as legendary. <laughs> and just seeing – again, we've talked about this. When it comes to the really good fight sequences, whether this is in Hong Kong cinema, uh, whether it involves swords or guns or whatever, when it's intimate and personal – and there is more at stake than who's going to stab who. It's more why are they trying to right. stab each other? Like really why are they? That is all at play during this showdown. And and there are questions up in the air mm-hmm. where loyalties lie, yeah. where, where someone can be pushed. And I thought that was a thrilling sequence full of – including involving one surprise that I didn't see coming and um, – Good move. Yeah. I like we'll just, I like that was a good choice. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. I For do, a couple of reasons. I do think that Ryan Johnson is having some fun with the script and knowing how his audience is perceiving certain moments because of our past history, but also just within the context of certain scenes and this particular film. One for me is when Donald Gleason, he's back oh, yeah. as Hux. And if you <laughs> thought he maybe pushed it too far in The Force Awakens <laughs> – well, he he just really digs in this time. His eyes are even darker. They are darker they circles. Are more more bags, bigger yeah. bags under his eyes. Well, he's even you do that he's much even yelling. pastier. He's even pastier, and he's even more sniveling. But he actually says to another commanding officer, "What's the point of all of this if you can't destroy a small little ship?" And Josh, not 30 seconds earlier, I literally said to myself, <laughs> what is the point of all this stuff if this little ship can just just stay just far enough away from them yeah. that they can't shoot it out of space? It just seems so silly, and maybe Ryan knew it was silly, and so we actually had a character verbalize it. We have, we've talked about, I think, like the, the massive vulnerability issues that both the Empire and the First Order have when yes. it comes to their, their giant ships and machinery. Right. Yeah, that seems to be carrying through, but you're right. Early on, there there's even it's almost as if they took into account the general audience reaction to Donald Gleason's character. Yes. And immediately yes. undercut that with a gag. Right. That, that's very funny. Right. And which and I, still didn't make me love the performance at all here. But no, but I, I think Gleason is yes. in on the performance this time in I a way that he, he wasn't too. before. At yeah. least the screenplay. And I think is. it's because Ryan yes. probably directed him to yes. be in on it and, and wrote so him to be in on it. It works a little bit better that way. Yeah, I agree with that. And it also seems that Ryan Johnson was aware of some of the criticisms of The Force Awakens because he directly addresses a couple things at one point that people had issues with, including me originally. And then during our revisit, I saw the light, so to speak. But he actually has Snoke at one point early in this film say, take off that mask. It's mm-hmm. a child's mask, yeah. which 
I tried to argue, and I know others probably have as well, that that really is how we were supposed to see him in that first film was not this menacing presence, but the the kid who felt compelled to put on that mask to try to be more intimidating. And then he actually directly asks him or confronts him about the fact that he was beaten by a girl who had never touched a lightsaber before. But guess what? He also validates something that came up in our conversation about why Snoke answers that question as to why he was so easily beaten during that confrontation. It does match what we said during that show. So I sort of like those touches that it seems aware of itself and aware of its place within not only this saga, but within our cultural landscape, but also didn't become at all just a series of kind of winking nods to that. Yeah, I think it, it, it juggles that, which is a very difficult thing to do. It juggles it quite well. The Last Jedi is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Massacre Theater is next. I don't know. Maybe should we do it in Yoda voices? Maybe. I don't have one. I don't have a Yoda. Shocker. <laughs> After that, we'll get to our review of a current critical darling. Call me by your name. Stay with us. You know I shan't be parted from your life, Sebastian. Through hell and high water, I will follow you. To the cross, to the prison, prison to the grave, to the, the sky. sky. I'd rather stop you breathing than have you doubt how I feel. Florence Pugh there with Cosmo Jarvis and director William Oldroy's Lady Macbeth. The film is based not on Shakespeare, well, not directly anyway, but on a 1934 Russian opera. Oldroyd moves the story of a young woman sold into marriage from 19th century rural Russia to rural England. The woman, Catherine, develops an obsessive affair with a worker on her husband's estate. The movie played in limited release over the summer, but Pew's performance has been one of the most talked about all year. In fact, she was one of the finalists for Best Actress on the Chicago Film Critics Association's ballot. We'll have more on that ballot in just a moment. Adam, I finished up my final voting before we started recording. You did. You still got to get to Oh, yeah. I'm waiting for the last possible second. Well, that's probably because you were busy catching up with Lady Macbeth. Yes. I hear it is a potential candidate for a golden brick. Yeah, that is one of the big reasons. It was as well about Pew's performance and seeing whether or not it would make my nominee's ballot. But The Brick is really what I had in mind because this movie came out, I think, in the spring. And it came out originally in the UK. And we had a lot of listeners from the UK tell us this is a Golden Brick candidate. The emails were coming in in April and May. And, well, it took me this long to catch up with it. But 
consider this my nomination for that award. It is William Oldroyd's debut film and I think meets our criteria in a variety of ways, which we'll get to a few of those. But this is a movie, Josh, that is about a woman you heard there in your description who lives in a highly oppressive society, who discovers her sexuality and really discovers her power over the course of this movie. And so one could argue potentially that it's the 2017 movie we've all needed and should rush to embrace. Or it could be, Josh, that it's the ultimate 2017 troll job. I'll let you and listeners who haven't seen it decide when they do finally see this movie. I will just say that Catherine is a victim, undoubtedly, of her circumstances. She's also in very many decided ways, not a victim. And there is a point watching this film where Sarah, my wife, was watching it with me. That wasn't planned. I think she was probably procrastinating a little bit. We had a million things to do. And yet we were sitting on the couch and I started it just thinking I'm going to get 20 or 30 minutes in and I'll finish it later when Sarah goes to bed. And I think because of the procrastination, but also because she was genuinely interested, she stayed and watched the whole movie with me or almost the entire movie At one point, she did just finally give up. She got up and left the room and was done with this movie because of a choice made by this character and not a choice Mm. she had to make. Let's put it that way. Maybe in her mind she had to make it, but we can't let her off the hook that easily. So I'm being kind of vague. Suffice it to say, there's a lot to wrestle with in terms of the subject matter and the themes it's dealing with. I'd like to wrestle with it some more. What I don't need to deliberate further on is the quality of Pew's performance. There's just no indicating or imploring. There's never requesting or demanding our sympathies or our pity. It's a very internalized performance. She spends a lot of it, as you might expect for a woman of this time, not speaking. She does a lot of looking and watching. And her best scene, I think, in terms of just pure acting, is one where she spends most of it standing silently, listening. And she's often expressionless, And yet she's never once dull. And she's incredibly, this is where the title Lady Macbeth comes in, she's incredibly calculating, but she never betrays the actual calculation that's occurring in her head. So this is a great performance in a year filled with a ton of great best actress performances. I know we're going to talk about our ballots here in a second. And that was for me by far the toughest category, best actress. I had at least 10 or 11 that I could have easily said were the best of the year and certainly deserving of the top five. And so good that as much as I love Pew's performance, I had her in the six to eight range. So her performance is a big part of the success of this film, but I really love the visual approach Old Roy brings here. It's a very natural look when she does finally get outside into this rural countryside. We really get those earthy tones. He relies a lot on daylight, on natural setting. So we either do see that natural light coming in. And of course, it's not a very bright light in rural England or it's candlelight. So you get those really dark hues and that yellow glow and a lot of the interior scenes. And Oldroyd is almost, almost Andersonian, West that is, in his framing. He's meticulous, if not quite as fussed over maybe as Wes Anderson, but he uses the full width and depth of the frame. He utilizes doorways and windows, just any vertical line basically to situate the characters in space. So the frames are very painterly. There's little movement, so we get these just great tableaus. But then we will get flourishes like when, after being told, 
she can't go outside. It's not her place as a woman to go outside and get fresh air. She should basically stay inside and run the house and read her Bible or at least consider all the various virtues of serving her husband when she does finally get outside, when her husband leaves town for an indeterminate amount of time. The camera kind of glides with that same giddiness that she actually is feeling in that moment. So I said we got a lot of emails recommending this for a brick and praising it, and it's got overall great reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I really want to dive into some of the negative takes on this film just to help me kind of work through some of my concerns about it. But in terms of it marking the debut of a filmmaker we need to keep an eye on, Lady Macbeth is it. The dynamic you're describing makes me think of two films. One probably obvious, The Piano, but also, and we'll get to this one, either in our top 10 show or perhaps a show after that, Phantom Thread. Mm. Is there a little bit of a parallel there maybe in the relationship yes. or at least the central female character. Yes. Okay. Except this central female character is much more like her namesake, in okay. this case, Lady okay. Macbeth, than I think we would ever suggest about Alma from Phantom Threat. And if okay. you haven't seen either of these movies, that really means nothing <laughs> to you. If you want to learn about Lady Macbeth, you can see it. It's currently available to rent on DVD and on most streaming platforms. Now, Josh, we're trying to cram in not only end-of-year viewing, but end-of-year Brick nominations. We're going to announce the finalists for the Brick on next week's show. I hear you have a candidate as well. Yeah, Loving Vincent rose to the top of my list because it is Eligible for Brick has a lot of the qualities we look for. It's also animated, and I was short on animated films this year that I wanted to see. The animation is really what's at the forefront here. I believe there's a title card early on that says 100 artists were involved in hand-painting this film, which is, and I haven't looked into all the details yet, but essentially it appears to be live-action motion capture. This is a drama about the last day in the life of Vincent van Gogh, uh, a character after his death coming back to the town where he died and investigating the circumstances. But the action has all been animated over and in the style of Van Gogh's paintings, which might at first sound trite, like, oh, you're going to try to look like Van Gogh. But what this does is bring you inside his paintings in a way that's absolutely surreal because every once in a while you'll be at a location that you recognize from a famous Van Gogh painting. As a matter of fact, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, the Art Institute here in Chicago had an exhibit, Van Gogh's Bedrooms. And we went to that and there was a cafe recreated in a corner of the exhibit hall to look like, I believe it was supposed to be like the the night cafe, that painting. And that was a little weird. You're standing kind of in this real space that was, okay, yeah, I can recognize it. This, when the camera begins moving through these spaces and the animation is also that, which we've seen with rotoscoping, there's actual movement to the colors and the lines as well in the characters' faces, but even in the background, the way trees will seem to blow because of how the animation is moving. It's just magical. Hmm. Uh, And yet there is an investigative plot to this as well. So there's a a narrative to follow that poses some intriguing questions about the last hours of Van Gogh's life and and more than that tries to understand um, his mental state or at least the challenges that he had as someone suffering from uh, manic depression, uh, I believe it was. So 
I really think this is a, a strong work of animation. The directors here who haven't had a ton of films to their credit, it's co-directed by Dorata Kobiela and Hugh Welchman. Uh, they've led this team to do some amazing work. Loving Vincent is currently out just in limited release, so not one that most of our listeners can probably get their hands on at this point. But if you do have a chance to see it, obviously Josh encourages you do. We will be narrowing down our Golden Brick candidates to five or so finalists that will be part of next week's show, which will be part one of our top 10 films of 2017 countdown. So we are going to talk just for a few minutes here about our Chicago Film Critics Association ballots. By the time people actually hear this, the winners will have already been announced. You can go to chicagofilmcritics.org to see those as we're taking this, we only have the nominees and a quick rundown of the leading vote getters here. Call me by your name. Eight nominations. The Shape of Water talked about, recommended by us very favorably last week on the show. Seven nominations. Dunkirk, Lady Bird, and Phantom Thread each got six. The Florida Project with five and then four nominations each for Blade Runner 2049, Get Out, Mudbound, and much to your chagrin, Josh. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, the Martin McDonough film. We're going to get to some more talk about McDonough and his film on one of our upcoming episodes. Now, I mentioned Florence Pugh and her great performance in Lady Macbeth. She did get a nomination, not for Best Actress, but for Most Promising Performer. And Loving Vincent, just recommended by you, is a nominee for Best Animated Film. What else about these categories stood out to you? Which categories were the toughest for you to whittle down to just five? I'm with you on actresses being really strong this year. That was really tough. So was supporting actress, as a matter of fact. Uh, So that was a challenge. I'm just relieved. It's always refreshing when you see some titles on here that – you know, your perception is what it is, but maybe you're not sure that that many people loved it as much as you did. So to see the Florida Project getting five nominations was encouraging. I, I actually thought it would get more. Really? Yeah. Okay. I kind of thought it would be, I don't know why, I thought it would be the leading vote getter. Oh, oh man. My, my impression was the love was not quite as widespread. Huh. Not that people, anyone had been opposed to it, just the exposure of the film. I didn't know how wide that was. So so that was encouraging to see. The Shape of Water, too, is is just, it's such an unlikely in terms of being a genre film and a fantasy film, uh, awards getter. So that's fun to see as well. And I'm glad people haven't forgotten about Dunkirk. We'll probably spend more time on that next week too. So Yeah, I'm sure we will. Best Actress, the nominees are Sally Hawkins for The Shape of Water, Vicki Kreps for Phantom Thread, Francis McDormand, Three Billboards, Margot Robbie for I, Tanya, and Saoirse Ronan for Lady Bird. I had three of those. On my top five. So some good crossover there. And Sally Hawkins was either number five or number six. She might have been just outside of my top five. So Best Actress was by far the toughest for me. The second toughest was Best Supporting Actor and was really happy to see Willem Dafoe sneak in there. Sam Rockwell as well for three billboards. Michael Stuhlbarg. We're going to talk about Call Me By Your Name in a minute and talk about Stuhlbarg as well. I'm sure I'm a little surprised that he got a nomination. Overall, Stuhlbarg had one of the more important roles in the whole cinema year 2017. If you look at his performances in The Post, where he has the least to do of the three performances, but then you go to Call Me By Your Name, where I wouldn't say he has a huge role, but he certainly plays a pivotal part in the film by the time we get to the end of it. And then we talked about him a little bit in The Shape of Water. That's the one where I think we saw a little bit more of his range. So I'm overall very happy that he got a nomination. I guess I didn't quite expect it for that performance. I think the Call Me By Your Name performance, which we'll get into, is a case of when you 
you get just one powerhouse scene and it comes near the end of a film, yep. that's going to go a long way mm-hmm. in terms of voters' memories. Willem Dafoe here, if he hadn't been on this list, I, I would have <laughs> He would have taken a flamethrower to the place? I would have just given up because that is a lock for me. I think I said in our review that I can't even distinguish – and that was actually with Michael Phillips. I can't even distinguish between the performance itself and my love for that character. Hmm. So uh, maybe my critical faculties are way out of whack. But man, that's my favorite supporting actor performance of the year by a mile. I have to confess that when I am putting these ballots together, they go through a lot of revisions. And there is a lot of consternation about my final rankings. And this is why it's very helpful to have a sounding board. Sometimes that's you. A lot of times it's Sam. Obviously, I've been doing this with him. 12 plus years now and we were talking about not every category but the ones that were really killing me best actress and best supporting actor that was number two and I did have Defoe in my top five but he might have been three or four I had a few people ahead of him and Sam and I were talking and he just said in our slack he said you know, Defoe's the one, though, that's the most crucial to that film so in some ways it's not just recognition for the performance which is spectacular so it's deserving. But Defoe, that character, that motel manager, is so crucial to the Florida Project and everyone else were truly more supporting players. Had scenes that I loved and had many moments that I loved. But if you took that character out of the film, forget about the performance, just take the character out of the film, the movie still would have been largely successful. And you can't imagine the Florida Project without that manager and without Defoe playing him. Right. And and it might even be a case of screen time, too. I mean, it might he be. might be That's what I'm saying. very yeah. close to leading role minutes. But either way, it was a great performance. Yeah. Defoe, Rockwell, Stuhlbarg, I mentioned Army Hammer for Call Me By Your Name and Jason Mitchell for Mudbound are the other two nominees there. And I guess, Josh, we have to at least mention the five best picture candidates. They were Call Me By Your Name, Dunkirk, Lady Bird, The Shape of Water, and yes, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Guys, come on. (laughs) Five best of the year? I was really excited to see that, mainly, though, because I knew it would bother you. Any other closing thoughts? I will just note that the poll we have up on the website is asking for the best picture of 2017, and we gave three options. Two of them are here among the best picture nominees for CFCA Dunkirk and Ladybird. Yeah, and Get Out didn't get that best picture nomination, but is one of those top nominated films. We also included Other in that poll, and not a surprise that Other is winning. When you have an entire year of cinema, you would expect that reducing it to only three might not land on everybody's top choice. But if you look at the options we gave, there's a lot of votes for them, and it is a pretty close race overall, so your vote does matter. You can vote now at filmspotting.net if you leave a comment, and we hope you do. Let us know where you're listening from. We have to mention T-shirts, According to our merch partners, TeePublic, if you make an order, at least here within the United States, by December 17th, your film spotting t-shirt will get delivered by Christmas. Now, I don't know if Josh's book can make that same promise or not. I think the link on our merch page just goes to Amazon. And the way I understand it, when you just look at something on Amazon, it's delivered in two hours. So that's amazing. You should be fine if you want to get the book for Christmas. Filmspotting.net slash shop. And filmspotting.net slash events is also where we very often give away free movie passes. And you can get passes now if you're in the Chicago area to see Alexander Payne's Downsizing with Matt Damon, Molly's Game from Aaron Sorkin starring Jessica Chastain, and I, 
Tanya with Margot Robbie as the disgraced figure skater Tanya Harding. All those available now to see for free and in advance of their release here in Chicago. Again, filmspotting.net slash events. It is time for some bad acting. We call it Massacre Theater. It's the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. Listen, I just want you to know how honored I am to be studying under such... No, you listen. I just want you to know exactly who you are dealing with. How many women do you see in this kitchen? Well, I... <laughs> Only me. Uh, Why do you think that is? Well, I... Because how cuisine is an antiquated hierarchy built upon rules written by stupid old men. Rules designed to make it impossible for women to enter this world. But still I'm here. How did this happen? <laughs> because, well, because you... Uh, <laughs> because I'm the toughest cook in this kitchen. I have worked too hard for too long to get here, and I am not going to jeopardize it for some garbage boy who got lucky. Got it? Go! <laughs> That was Janine Garofalo, forgot about that, as Colette with Lou Romano's Linguini in 2007's Ratatouille. It was written by Brad Bird with Jan Pinkava, Jim Capobianco, and Bob Peterson. It was co-directed by Bird and Pinkava. That massacre, part of a show that included our Sacred Cow review of There Will Be Blood and our top five movie years. For the connections between Ratatouille and that show, we turn, as always, to our insightful listeners. Wade McCormick from Kansas City. Of course, Ratatouille was released in 2007, along with There Will Be Blood. Ratatouille was a Pixar film, and Pixar's new film, Coco, was also discussed on the show. Show. And I'll mention, I just finally saw Coco this weekend with my kids, and I loved it. Good stuff, right? Really good. Nice. Rose from Palatine said, additionally, Michael Giacchino scored both Coco and Ratatouille. Stretching things a bit, Patton Oswalt is a stand-up comic who had a breakthrough role as Remy in Ratatouille. And Paul F. Tompkins is a stand-up comic who unexpectedly had a dramatic turn as Prescott in There Will Be Blood. You mentioned that Paul Thomas Anderson based his movie very loosely on an Upton Sinclair novel. I would argue that had Sinclair heard about a rat in a French kitchen, that tidbit would have certainly made its way into his most famous work, The Jungle, with its scathing indictment of health and safety violations in the food industry. On a lighter note, both movies have scenes that involve a comfort food in There Will Be Blood. It was a milkshake and, of course, the titular vegetable stew of ratatouille. Bravo. Rose really going for some deep cuts there. Joshua Bertram in Toronto says, like There Will Be Blood is about the cutthroat oil industry, Ratatouille is about a similarly cutthroat industry, the restaurant business. We also heard from Ariel Rosine from Watertown, Wisconsin. Ratatouille's protagonist was voiced by Patton Oswalt, who also had a bit part in the opening of Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, which of course came out in Josh's number five and Adam's number three movie year. 1999. Wow, just keeps getting better. Adam Hoffer in Memphis, Tennessee. Aside from There Will Be Blood and Ratatouille being released in the same year, they also both explore the theme of capitalism, where There Will Be Blood shows it at its utter worst in the ways it can be exploited. Ratatouille shows the good that comes from the personal incentive of working hard to achieve one's dreams. Both Daniel Plainview and Remy are shown putting in the necessary effort to achieve success, but Plainview does it at the expense of others, whereas Remy does it to the benefit of others. Another one here from Donald in Tallahassee, Florida. Adam, I appreciate the accent work. You may have only maintained the faux French accent for 53% of the time, but hey, that's about as much as Janine Garofalo managed to, so you did just fine. There you go. Why do you think that is? Well, I... Because hot cuisine is an antiquated hierarchy built upon rules by stupid old men. Not so, says Ronald in North Providence, Rhode Island. As someone majoring in French, I must side with Josh on this by saying that your accent barely registered, especially when you pronounce the H in hot. It is silent, but great effort nevertheless. Thank you so much, Ronald. I probably would have done the same. Don't oh, yeah. feel bad. No, you're not going to get me to say 
oat cuisine here on the show. I am not sophisticated enough for that. Let's go ahead and reach into the pretty brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner, Josh. The winner is Alessandro Bellido de Luna from Miami, Florida. Congratulations, Alessandro. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. How did I come to this? Not again. I'm Claude Richard III. Five curtain calls. Five curtain calls. I was an actor once Damn it now, look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I won't say that stupid line one more time. Here we go. Another edition of Massacre Theater. That's all I can say. It's another edition because I am woefully unprepared <laughs> for this part. Well, I'm, I'm prepared because we took a 15-minute break for me to build up enough phlegm. <laughs> That's a pretty good hint. And I guess we'll just go with that. The connection to this week's show, I don't even know. I don't even know what the connection to this week's show is, so I will be looking forward to listeners illuminating me. Are you ready? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's go. You started off, so I'm going to give you the action. And action. Where would you be? I saved us. It's me. We survived because of me. Not anymore. What did you say? Master looks after us now. We don't need you. What? Leave now and never come back. No. Leave now and never come back. (laughs) Leave now and never come back. (laughs) And scene. So we just did a scene from Monty Python, basically. That was my terrible attempt. Or was that your Kylo Ren? Could have been. Also, it's WBZ's holiday party tonight. Mm -hmm. There's a window to this studio. They didn't invite us. (laughs) No, that's a good point. They didn't invite us. But they also could just see what we did. And we will not ever be invited now. Sam will cut this out of the radio version, right? Nobody will actually have to listen to that massacre theater. We're sorry, everyone. If you know what movie we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, January 8th. You've got almost a month to figure out what film we just destroyed. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks to get official massacre theater rules. Oh, to see without my eyes The first time is there anything you don't know? Boundless by the time I cry. You only knew how little I know about the things that matter. Build your walls what things that matter? White noise, what an awful sound. You know what things. Are you saying what I think you're saying? A final little bit of business this week as we hear a bit of the trailer for Call Me By Your Name, directed by Luca Guadagnino. He gave us 2016's A Bigger Splash with Tilda Swinton and Ray Fiennes and 2010's I Am Love, also starring Swinton. Timothy Chalamet is our main character here, Elio, a 17-year-old boy living with his father, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, and his mother in northern Italy. They summer there in northern Italy, and he befriends and develops a relationship with Army Hammer's doctoral student who comes to spend a few weeks with them. A lot of awards buzz surrounding this film, in addition to the Chicago Film Critics Association. It's won several awards from other critics groups, and Timothy Chalamet in particular has gotten a lot of acclaim. Is it all well-deserved? I'm probably not quite as high as most people on this, though I do like it quite a bit. Chalamet is 
almost too good. You know, it's it's just the levels of emotion that he has to access in this role and the sort of duplicity, the teenage duplicity he has to project while also letting this inside this kid's head and the way he's able to do that is really amazing. You could almost detect that he knows it's working and some of that cockiness seeps out of the performance. You know what I mean? There are times where he's almost cocky when he's not supposed to be cocky Mm. because he's so good. And this is absolutely a kid we used to try to do um, you know, rising stars, uh, a list every year. Oh yeah. And we've done them here. I mean, he would be at the top, right? Mm-hmm. Um, actors of the future. Actors of the future. There and, you go. Yeah. Um, he's he's it. he, he is absolutely it. I like army hammer just as much in this movie. I initially saw this, uh, way back at Sundance and that was my takeaway. He just, it's like, he's the sun itself. When he comes into this movie, he's so confident. He's so just physically big. He's so bright. And he brings this, this zest for life to the character, which is absolutely what it calls for. He reminds me of Jude Law and talented Mr. Ripley, the way he just has that, that charm that overtakes the movie. And in the case here, overtakes Elio's life, really. Initially, there's some resistance there. He calls him, the first thing he calls him is the usurper, right? Because he kicks Elio out of his room. And then he begins to look at him as a big brother type. And then as he peels away and maybe for the first time starts to confront some of his deeper feelings and who he is as a, a sexual person, then it turns into something else. And and that's where this movie you can see why critics are swooning for it because it's a movie made to make you swoon as its characters are swooning. Hmm. I think that's well said. I probably won't express quite as well why I don't enjoy Hammer's performance as much as Chalamet's. I haven't figured it out quite yet, Josh, what it is. There's an aloofness to his performance that I think is part of the character. He's He's maybe meant to be a little bit elusive, and I don't know if it's fair to say that he's playing hard to get, but it certainly makes him more mysterious the more he kind of just does his own thing and doesn't seem to to really need anyone else. Now, this changes over the course of the movie, certainly, as their relationship deepens, but something about it initially didn't pull me in with Hammer the way Chalamet did. And of course, we have to note that it's really his movie. Hammer is a supporting performer here, and Chalamet is at the core of everything that is Call Me By Your Name. I was so clueless about this. I didn't read any other information or reviews. I didn't know that this was the same director until today who gave us I Am Love and A Bigger Splash. A Bigger Splash was a movie that was a real regret of mine from 2016. I Am Love was a movie that I think was in my 11 through 20 of 2010, and they all take place in Italy. They all have settings that revel in absolute splendor. And so it's easy to become sort of intoxicated and swoon just at the locations that Guadagnino uses. And this northern Italian estate that they live on is this oasis. It's a utopia. It's referred to only as northern Italy, almost like it is just this utopia. It's not given a name. We don't know the exact location. And I think that that's because it's almost this fantastic setting. It's unreal. I felt watching it, Josh, like the only way I knew that it was the early 1980s was because of the music. Mm -hmm. That's it. Otherwise, I feel like this movie could have taken place really in any decade from the past five or six. It just has that kind of timeless almost like I said, fantasy quality to it. Not only is there an incredible home, but there are trees and forests nearby and pools and ponds and streams and these lovely little towns that they go to. And everything about the environment is nurturing. And that's matched by the people 
within that environment as well. The parents are also these nurturers. So you've got this really smart, really talented 17-year-old and these really intellectual, incredibly open-minded parents. And they basically just allow him to kind of blossom in this space to read, to relax, to play music, to discover, just to discover. And I think that it's very easy as a viewer to also get swept up in that. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned Hammer being aloof, and I, I think that's because his character, and there is an arc, um, but his character is really a hedonist. And you look at the way he even the first morning cracks open his egg, right? right. As this, he he devours this thing to, to their kind of shock because you're supposed to gently, delicately tap it and then eat it politely. The way the apricot juice that the mother brings, yeah. he downs it, right? The way he, he dances it. famously it, on this is, social media. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's if – if I'm still thinking through something, it's a little bit – it's a little related to the questions people have had about the age gap in this relationship, which the movie goes to pains to to make sure consent is involved. And from what I understand, you know, the laws in Italy at the time that this this would have been, you know, legal. But still people are raising the question, I think, in this year of just sexual ethics being up for debate mm-hmm. in general, okay? And this is not to draw a parallel to any of the Weinstein stuff or anything like that. But I think in general as a culture, we're starting to ask questions of sexual ethics and policing things differently. And so this comes into the picture. Call Me By Your Name is a very persuasive, elegant, lush argument for hedonism. And the one thing I wonder is if the movie might have been enriched or maybe I would have appreciated a little bit more curiosity about this relationship and maybe some of the costs that the Oliver character, the Hammer character, might be responsible for. Hmm. And that is related to the age difference. Because legal or not, they're at very – and precocious or not – they're at very different stages of emotional maturity. And I I think that's something that is recognized in – it's something that's wonderful about Chalamet's performance. Mm -hmm. There are quiet moments where we see – uh, that registering, the, what's really what he's really experienced, and the other thing I'm conflicted about is a scene that is in the running for my most moving moment of the year. Uh, the conversation Elio has with his dad, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, mm-hmm. which has a wonderful touch at the beginning, where Stuhlbarg says, "You two are good." This is the first time that he is acknowledging that he knows his son is gay, and he emphasizes, "You two are good," and you see in Chalamet's performance, what that means Mm -hmm. to this kid to finally hear that. The Stuhlbar character moves from there to this really interesting speech that is, in fact, an argument for hedonism that presents going for what we want for our own pleasure as a form of love. And I'm not sure if I buy that transition that Hmm. that the movie makes. I, I think there's something more about sacrifice involved in love. There's something more about it involving another person in a way that's different than serving our own pleasure. Uh, and, mm. I, and think man, it's, I think it's smart enough for that. This, is a, this movie makes that sound re- and look really, really good. Yeah, it does. I think that the movie is aware of the gap between them emotionally, and I think it acknowledges that. And while I think that your reading of the ending is is pretty sound. For me, this is really the strength of this movie. And I've said it before that I hate to praise a movie primarily for the things it doesn't do versus the things it does. But I love 
that this movie does not at all go down the path that so many movies dealing with this subject matter have gone down before. This so easily could have become another type of movie, a very cliched movie that we have all seen before. And I won't get into the details, but I will say that it's just not interested in punishing its characters for the sake either of melodrama and amping up that tension or for moralizing. And I think Guadagnino is smart enough to know that we're going to be asking ourselves as viewers those questions. We're going to be wrestling with some of those questions about the ethics of it. And that's sufficient, that the movie doesn't necessarily need to completely put it out there in a way beyond it showing us, beyond it depicting it. Yeah, and I'm certainly, don't misunderstand me, I'm not asking for this movie to be moralizing. I I think that would ruin it. That would ruin the Mm -hmm. delicacy that is at work here. I I guess a a little bit of moral curiosity, I think, might have gone a long way for me, at least. Okay. Well, we disagree on that. I will say with that end monologue that I looked at it on paper not too long after I saw the film, and it was much shorter than I remembered it Really, from the film. It's much shorter, and I think that that's partly due to Stuhlbarg's deliberateness. He's very deliberate. He's very slow oh, yeah, the, with the words. Precise pauses. Precise, exactly. It's not just that he's milking it. It's that he's very precise. But he's also— a, He's a father choosing his words carefully. That is it. But I also think it's because of the insight and the power that the words, for me anyway, contained— There's actually not much on the page, and yet it hits with such a force that saying very little becomes saying so much. And again, I don't really disagree with you in terms of this movie being, in some ways, an embrace of hedonism. That certainly comes through in that final monologue, but I guess it was enough for me, Josh, just feeling like I was being treated to the pleasures in a way that the characters were, too, just by watching the film, just by watching it and seeing how they were relishing life and relishing their environment and their time together. That was enough, too. So those pleasures are a huge part of it, but there was also an acknowledgement of some pain, too. And Chalamet, if you have heard anything about this film, you know about the end monologue. You've probably heard a little bit of conversation about it, and you've probably heard about the end shot. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to get into that too much either, but similar to what I said about Florence Pugh from Lady Macbeth, nothing is really happening. We are watching a character for an extended period of time not say anything or ostensibly do anything, just be on screen. And there isn't a second of it that isn't amazingly compelling. You see the arc of that scene, of that character. It's its own mini drama without Chalamet ever resorting to any actorly tricks. And I can think of, you know, a few movies have used this technique to close Michael Clayton, for example. Yes, that's one I thought of. It's sort of a, a challenge that is given to actors. I don't know if I've seen it given to an actor this young right? <laughs> that, who's pulled it off quite so well. We should mention Chalamet in Lady Bird. Very good as yes, supporting part in Lady Bird, too. I saw Lady Bird before I saw this, and I didn't recognize him, actually. It was only when I Googled him after seeing the first hour of Call Me By Your Name, I said, who is this kid? Because he's astonishing. And then it turns out I liked him there. He had a little bit more of a blatantly comedic role, I'd say, in Lady Bird as the boyfriend. Obviously, he gets more to do here. And he is just an actor who is both incredibly mature, seems wise beyond his years. And yet, I do think enough of the immaturity comes through as well that you get the sense that he's aware that he has so much more to discover about himself and life. But you mentioned the confidence his, his physicality is such a big part of this role. He 
he annoys me so much. He just seems so amazingly talented and confident, <laughs> but not in a cocky way. It's not like he walks into a room in this film and owns the room and is arrogant no, in some I way. Think that's it's, what I, it's a comfort in his own skin that Army Hammer's character has as well. I think that's what I mean by you're right. He's not a cocky kid, or at least as cocky as he could be, given all his gifts and his talents. And yet somehow, just because of Chalamet's sheer talent, it's yes. a cocky performance. Yeah. Does that make any yeah. sense? No, that's why I said and I hate I him. I don't necessarily need I want to, to, be hold, him. to hold that against him. It's just something you notice when you're watching him yeah. on screen. Call Me By Your Name is currently playing in limited release. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. That is our email address for any feedback you'd like to offer us on this episode. You can also send us an MP3 file or leave us a short voicemail, and we may just use it in an upcoming episode. 312 2640744 at filmspotting.net you can find 12 years of reviews interviews and top 5s in the show archives while you're there go ahead and vote in the current film spotting poll we're asking the best film of 2017 is dunkirk get out ladybird or other and if you haven't already please check out the film spotting family of podcasts that includes the next picture show and film spotting svu find them both in apple podcasts or through your preferred podcast app out in limited release, The Ballad of Lefty Brown, a coming-of-age western for a 65-year-old man with Bill Pullman and Peter Fonda and the movie we just talked about, Call Me By Your Name. Out in wide release, the animated movie Ferdinand and The Last Jedi, recommended by both of us earlier this show. Next week, we will have part one of our top 10 films of 2017. And Sam and I have been talking about this behind the scenes a little bit, Josh. We'll see how the picks shake out when we see our lists and we get... Michael Phillips and Tasha Robinson's list, but instead of doing that that countdown, 10 to 6, one episode, and then 5 to 1, maybe we'll see if there are those films that multiple members of the roundtable choose and the outliers, and we'll separate it that way. Kind of do part one, the outliers, and then build up to the ones where there's some crossover in our choices. We will see how that shakes out next week. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Like what you hear? Give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It does help us reach new listeners. Our music this week is by Big Thief. Comes from the album Capacity. More information is at BigThief.net. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.